Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. All right, if you are following along today in your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus 24, uh, which you'll see on page 64 in the Bible um, in your pew. Matthew 26, we're going to jump to John 14. So if you'd like to follow along, you might want to put a note there. We'll jump to that in a little bit. So Exodus 24, you have this amazing scene we're going to talk about for a bit. I want to give you a little context, a little refresher on Moses and where we're at with the, the people of God. So we're in Exodus 24, but in Exodus 20, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Most of us have heard of those before, but they were given in spoken form, not written form. The tablets in written form don't come until chapter 31, and we're in chapter 24. And so in the text we're reading today from Exodus 24, we see that Moses has received from God what is called the Book of the Covenant, which is words spoken to Moses from God in chapters 21, 22, and 23. You following me so far? Okay. So in Exodus 24, take a look at verse 7 with me again. It says, Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And so what happens is that Moses must have written down all that God has detailed to him how to live out the Ten Commandments in this thing called the Book of the Covenant, how to specifically live out the commands of God in their daily life. Okay, so to sum up, if you're following me, what we see is God speaks the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and then he details how to live them out in chapters 21, 22, 23, and then Moses shares them with the people, and then he writes down all of these instructions, which will be called the Book of the Covenant. And then he shares these again with the people in this official ceremony that we're reading about today, accompanied by the sprinkling of blood. Yes, I said it, sprinkling of blood. And then gives, then God gives him the Ten Commandments, but not until chapter 31 on tablets of stone. Okay? That's the context for our chapter today. And yes, we're going to talk about blood. Now, I know, especially if you're visiting with us, if I want to be kind of a cool pastor who's relevant, I probably shouldn't be talking about disturbing things like blood. But there it is, right in the Bible. But I'm sure glad my kids, kind of like children's Bibles with the pictures, that there's not some disturbing picture of people covered in blood as I read them their bedtime Bible story, right? So I'm glad we wait a little bit. And so for the, maybe for the first time, you're hearing about the blood in church, and we're going to talk about it. But blood is actually a pretty popular topic these days. I don't have time to go over every show, but something called Game of Thrones, lots of blood I hear. Something called The Walking Dead, it's about zombies, lots of blood I hear. There's even a teenage hit musical called Anna and the Apocalypse. Who's heard of it? Oh, you haven't. It's kind of like Sand of Music, but with zombies, okay? So it kind of works. You just might want to check it out. Um, it's not a Christian film. Uh, but, and there's a lot of blood in this story, and we're going to talk about the blood. Now, just a couple weeks ago, I'll have to tell you my experience with blood. I was uh, moving boxes. We just moved again to a rental um, nearby in Monterey. And what happened was I couldn't find the box cutters, you know, the things that you flip up and you 
slice. So I found a pair of scissors. What could go wrong, right? So I'm holding the box. I got to cut that packing tape is really hard to cut. So I have the scissors, and I'm a very coordinated person. And as I'm angling and I'm cutting through the tape, it kind of gets stuck. Because guess what? Tape is sticky, okay? And so it kind of gets stuck. So I push through and boom, right into my, and now some people who like have like blood things are like fainting in their pews. So I'm that good of a preacher. People are fainting. Um, So, and I couldn't, I couldn't stop the blood. Like I put a bandaid on and it kept like bleeding through. It took like five days to like stop. So uh, let's just say I don't enjoy, oh, whoa, whoa, it's still going. Okay. No, but I don't enjoy blood. I don't talk about it. I don't think about it a lot. I'm not squeamish about it, but it's just not part of my regular life. But in the Bible, blood is talked about everywhere, everywhere. And today we're going to talk about the blood. And I kept hearing in my wife, because she's, you know, wouldn't want me to use scissors, first of all, but she always said, like, always pointed away, always pointed away from you, right? When you're cutting. And so that's what I did with the scissors. So it's kind of her fault right? Because I slipped, and if I wasn't listening to her, I wouldn't have stabbed myself. Okay, so it's kind of her fault, and I'm going to be paying for that later. All right, so today where we're going to see Jesus is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the Lord and the people and who mediates a new covenant through his blood. So we got to talk about the word covenant. We're going to talk about blood, and so let's start what, with this word, the covenant. What is a covenant? Well, it's a promise. It's a contract. It's an agreement. In Exodus 24, God makes a covenant with Israel, but through Moses. Moses is, in many ways, God's messenger to the people. And this covenant is sealed actually with a meal. Take a look at verse 11. So it talks about Moses, and, um, and it says how God interacts with them. He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and they drank. And so we have a covenant ceremony, okay? There's blood involved, and there's food, just like your family gatherings, right? So, but what we see here is that they're all important, that this isn't just some kind of cold, like, business contract, right? This is a family meal. Uh, This is uh, a, a really important ceremony where something deep is happening in the relationships, And so, don't you always think every important meeting should have food, right? Any important gathering really should have food. Food makes meetings better. And food is right here, the center of this ceremony with the covenant with God, his people, Moses, and sprinkling of blood. It's a family affair. Because being brought into the covenant is being brought into the family of God. It's coming to God's table. Think of your best memory as a family, whatever kind of family you come from, your best memories of family. I bet often those best memories have food a part of it, something, food or drink or some kind of gathering that's part of it. And so at the center of this ceremony where God is making a covenant with his people, there's food. This is a family deal because we're being brought into the family of God. We're coming to his table. And so the covenant, this agreement, this contract, it's a special relationship designed to save us out of the world, but then into his family, not into a religion, not into morality, into a relationship of love, of security. And this food makes this a family affair. And the blood marks it as a significant agreement 
as significant as could be between a people and their king. This is just like in the ancient Near East at this time. There was a blood ceremony to mark the promise of a king to the promise of his people, meaning I will not break my promise. I swear in my blood, I promise you, a king to his people, and the people promise to the king as well. Now, Jesus, keep in mind, references this very passage, I believe, Exodus 24 in Matthew 26. So I'm going to turn to Matthew 26 real quick. I'm going to read part of this, starting in verse 26. Matthew 26, 26, page 832, if you're following. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So keep Matthew 26 in mind, okay? Jesus is reinterpreting Exodus 24, the night before he sacrificed on a cross, the night before he gives up his life. He says, I have something very important to do with you and to tell you. And he says that just how God made a covenant in Exodus 24, I'm making a covenant with you. Because Jesus is saying, I fulfill the blood of this covenant, this promise of God that is now fulfilled in me. So our Lord Jesus himself connects and explains his saving work as he's about to do on the cross by using Moses' words in Exodus 24, verse 8, where Moses says, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay. So Jesus fills the blood of this covenant. So when Moses confirms that God has brought his people into a saving covenant relationship in Exodus 24, verse 8, he says, behold, and as he sprinkles this blood on the people, he says, this is the blood of the covenant, that this is the blood that seals the covenant, that shows you that you've been brought into, not into just a contract, not into just a business deal, into a family. It seals it. This covenant relation with God that spares you from our deserved judgment because we're imperfect, sinful people who have good intentions but could never live up to all that we were meant to be. This blood seals the promise. And so when Jesus in Matthew 26 is doing the Lord's Supper, introducing it, he's actually reinterpreting one of the most important pieces, moments of Israel's history and says, it's all about me. Can't you see me in there in Exodus 24? This is all about me. Moses was predicting me, this blood that really works. That other blood was just temporary. My blood is the perfect blood, the perfect sacrifice, perfectly giving in love to you so that you could be in my family forever. That's what the blood means. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, we could say, isn't Jesus being fairly self-centered here? He keeps reinterpreting Bible passages about himself. Well, yeah, because it is about him. (laughs) He's not just being self-centered at all. He is being truthful. And he wants you to know if you center your life around him, center your thinking around him, center your actions around him, center your your spending around him, centering your life around him, you will finally discover who you were meant to be because it's all about him. Every story in this Bible is about Jesus. 
Behold, my blood of the covenant, Jesus is saying, that's me in Exodus 24, but I am the true and better version of it. Hebrews 10.4, if you're taking notes, says this, the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sin and cannot cleanse the conscience. See, Jesus knows that the disciples know Exodus 24. They're good Jewish males who are trained up in the synagogue, trained up in the word of God, the Hebrew scriptures. They knew Exodus 24 by heart. And as they're listening to Jesus at the Last Supper saying, wow, he's saying that that passage is all about him, that he is the ultimate sacrifice, that his blood is the ultimate cleansing Jesus knows that the disciples know this passage and the significance of it, and he's saying, friends, you've got to send your life around me. That bringing people into fellowship with God can only happen through my blood. And so Jesus is saying, friends, that blood couldn't bring you into fellowship with God, but my blood can and my blood will when I take that cross tomorrow and you see me bleed out and you see me with my last breath. It's a victory. And I did it out of love for you. It's not a religion. It's not morality. It's a relationship. He's inviting you into his family. And so he says, behold, my blood of the covenant, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Isn't that exciting to see Matthew 26, the Lord's Supper, Exodus 24, you'll never see him the same again. See, you can't worship God without that mediator who is greater than Moses, who Moses, who brought the first blood covenant, Jesus is announcing that in him he fulfills what Moses initiated but couldn't fulfill. That Jesus says, I'm the perfect fulfillment. Because only Jesus' blood can give them the love and the peace and the life they've always longed for. It's still true to us today. Only through Jesus. Because we got one mediator, and his name is Jesus Christ, and it's his blood, no others. It's his blood alone that brings us into fellowship with the living God. It's his blood in his promise that his word is good. That's why he sealed it with blood like a good king would do. I promise this gift I give you I will never take away. I promise, I swear in my blood, you will be in my family forever. If you will say yes to me, I will never let you go. His word is good. The covenant was made in blood so the world would know that God would always be good to his word. And he fulfilled this promise, Jesus Christ, by saying, I will come. The Father sent him to us. And he says, I will go, Father. I will give up my blood to fulfill that covenant promise that couldn't be fulfilled through all of the other sacrifice, through all the attempts to follow the law and the rules perfectly, trying to be a good human being. They can never be good enough. And so I will go, Father, send me. And he came. It's a relationship, not a cold contract. This covenant is more actually like a marriage. Just sharing with someone uh, before the service started what a covenant was. Yes, it's a contract, but when you get married, you sign a covenant. It's a spiritual covenant, but it's a legal document as well. See, the words that Jesus uses in the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, actually echo a marriage customs in the Jewish society of the first century. So you got to go back 2,000 years somewhere in the Middle East, particularly amongst the Jews, but other Middle Eastern people as well. A, a typical wedding ceremony for our Jewish friends back then would, would involve a covenant. So get this, the groom... Okay, if you want to get married to a particular bride, 
would leave his father's house with his best man and would travel and go to his bride's house. And he had to settle on a purchase price. And still today, in some cultures, in some villages, there's still a purchase price so that the family who's losing the family member, the bride, will get some help out of the loss. And so the groom would leave the father's house with his best man, go to the bride's house, and agree on a purchase price so that he can get married. And as soon as he paid the price to the bride's family, then they were legally husband and wife from that moment on. And this new covenant was sealed with, guess what? A cup of wine. And so what happens is that this groom now, once he seals this covenant with wine, now he has to leave the bride. So he doesn't get to go with the bride. Where does he go? Well, he has to go back to the father's house, actually. Even though they're legally married in that culture, and that's why even you see Joseph and Mary, when he discovers Mary's pregnant, they're not married yet. You're not supposed to get pregnant when you're not married, especially in an ancient Middle Eastern culture, even today. And so Joseph said in the scriptures that he chose to divorce Mary quietly. Divorce, they're not married, but they are married. In ancient Jewish custom, they're already married. Once you drink the wine, you seal it. It's a covenant promise, right? So they're married legally, but where's the groom? He has to go back to the father's house. What's he doing? Where's he going? Is he scared? Got cold feet? No. He has to go back to his father's house to prepare a room for his bride because they're going to live all in one giant family compound as they did back in the day and as still many cultures do today. Grandpa's there, parents are there, kids are there, grandkids are all there in the same housing compound, okay? Because after the wedding, the groom and bride will be living with the groom's parents and so they could be gone the groom and bride could be apart for 12 months, maybe, while he's building this apartment in his father's house. Now, the way the economy is going today with housing prices, this tradition might get a little revival, right, in our culture as well. It's already happening. The ancient Israelite customs still might happen today, really, in the villages of Israel and other villages in other places around the world. And so the bride and groom, they don't see each other, whether it's six months, nine months, 12 months. They don't get to see each other, but during this betrothal period, they are legally married. They're legally bound together, relationally and spiritually, legally. Now, betrothal in Jewish law is nothing like the modern sense. They were actually married. You had to get a divorce. It's like I said, like Joseph said he was going to do with Mary, which he didn't do. So if the groom died, his fiancée would actually be considered a widow. That's what the betrothal means. Okay, so six months go by, or nine months, maybe 12 months. It would take that long for the groom to return to the bride's house for the wedding, right? So they're engaged, they're betrothed, but wedding hasn't happened. What's taking him so long? Well, remember, he's got to build a room, a house in his father's house for his bride. That's what's taking so long. Not until was the house complete would he get the okay to go and get his bride, to have the wedding, so on a surprise day, this is really how they did it, sometimes or often at midnight, the groom would finally come for his bride. And then the announcement was made to the village that the wedding will begin. It was a week-long festival, maybe longer, still happens at that length today. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine this today? You get engaged, you don't see each other for like 12 months, right? But you're legally married. Now, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 14. 
Okay? I'm going to read the words of Jesus. This is a different night before Jesus is crucified story. And Jesus says this to his disciples, and they're having a meal. He says this on page 901 for following. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is talking about a wedding. He's talking about a marriage. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is talking about this covenant, and he's preparing to give his life on the cross. That's what he's doing in John 14. He's talking about really, though, not starting a new religion. He's talking about getting married. He's talking about the wedding day, a future wedding day, where he will come back to get his bride when the time is right. When Jesus talks about the covenant, he's talking about giving his life on the cross, but he's talking about you and me being with him forever. So next time you take the Lord's Supper, you think of Matthew 26 and John 14 and Exodus 24, and you think, wow, we're actually reaffirming betrothal vows when we take the bread and the cup. Jesus is talking about a marriage. He's talking about a wedding. He's talking about a love relationship. He's talking about not just a bunch of rules. He's talking about a family. The new covenant, that's what it means. We are accepting Jesus' proposal to invite us to be with him for eternity. That's what he's doing. Now, some people come to church to find a spouse, but the reality is Jesus wants to be your spouse. That's why we come to church. You didn't know your spouse is really Jesus. See, Moses came, and he brought a covenant of rules. And Jesus fulfilled this covenant, and then he bestows upon us his perfect fulfillment of it when we marry into his family. That's what this means. So that's why Jesus really is a true and better Moses. Because when Jesus stands in the gap between God and humanity, Jesus' sacrifice actually makes a way for us to be with God forever. It's his proposal. And he wants you to say yes. See, Jesus doesn't want us to be just making a contract with him. Oh, say this prayer and I let you into heaven. No, no, no. It's way more than that. Jesus is saying, I want to marry you. And the engagement ring is kind of like his blood. And the cup that we take is like a promise. So Jesus right now, according to the scriptures, is preparing a room for you For those who have said yes to his invitation, yes to his proposal. That means he's preparing a room right now in his father's house, and he's coming back one day, a day that no one knows, a surprise day and time, and when he will arrive, he'll announce, it's the wedding day, so we can finally celebrate. I don't know when that day is. No one does. Could be soon, but that's why Jesus hasn't come yet. He's waiting. He's building a room for those who want him in their life, for those who will receive the invitation of Jesus to say yes, he's preparing a room in his father's house. So Jesus is a true 
and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and between the Lord. And he mediates a new covenant through his blood, but it's a covenant of love. And like any good wedding, there's food. A feast is to come. And until he comes again with that great wedding day feast, we are to live faithfully to him, engaged to him, betrothed to him. And what's our job? To hand out appetizers, to let people know there's a great feast coming, and it's going to be even better than these little appetizers, through the way you love people, the way you serve those who need Jesus, the way that we care for the poor, the way that we stand up for injustice, the way that we share the good news of the gospel. We're handing out little glimpses of God's goodness until the wedding day when Jesus comes back on that surprise day, that surprise time to take his bride home. We're waiting expectantly. As we wrap up this series of Jesus in the Old Testament, I want to remind you how Jesus is on every page of the Bible. Yes, Exodus 24, but all the way from Genesis, all the way to the end of Revelation. But through that, the whole Old Testament, through the pages of every story in the Hebrew Scriptures, you can see Jesus again and again and again. Would you take a look at this video and see this for yourselves? Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover land, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us 
He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. It's all about him. He's not being self-centered. He's just being truthful. Every story in the Bible points to Jesus. Yes, his blood, this covenant, this promise, it's not legalism. It's a marriage proposal. It's not sentimentalism. We just spent a whole weekend around a wonderful Valentine's Day holiday which filled with so much sentimentalism. And Jesus saying, oh, it's more than that. It is a love story. It's a different kind of love story. He's offering the love that we're all looking for. He's saying it's a marriage proposal. He's saying, I don't want to just date you. I want to marry you. I want this to be forever love. Will you say yes? For some of us, we just need to respond to Jesus' invitation and say, yes, I will follow you. I turn away from these other ways. I turn and repent. Forgive me, Lord. Thank you for your blood. Cleansing blood, hopeful blood, life blood, and say yes. See, Jesus, he's made the journey, keep this in mind, from his father's house, and he's paid the purchase price for his bride. He's sealed the agreement with the cup. He's given us the engagement ring, which maybe is the Holy Spirit, right? And he says, do not be afraid. I prepared a place for you, and I am coming back, and I will take you to myself so that you may be where I am, John 14. You see, Jesus chose me to be his brother, his friend, his servant, and somehow his bride. That's what the Bible says. And he didn't choose you or me because you were pretty, because I'm losing my prettiness. Every day I'm reminded And isn't that good news, that he didn't choose you based on your goodness or your beauty, but simply out of his grace, his goodness, his beauty. And it's a love that you never earned, and it's a love you can never lose. It's the only unlosable love in your life. None other can promise you that. He says, do not be afraid. I am coming back. A day and hour that you will not know, but I am coming back. I go to prepare a room for you in my father's house. And if it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. I think someone here today needs to know he wouldn't have told you if it wasn't true. But someone in here is like, I just find it hard to believe that I'd be loved so much. Or I just find it hard to believe that he's really, is he really doing that? Jesus says, I would not have gone through all of this to just trick you. I didn't go through all this suffering, all this pain, all of this work to just say, it's a joke, sorry, wedding's canceled. Scripture says, actually, he sent the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. It's the engagement ring, the Holy Spirit in you. So in your moments of doubt, you can know that Jesus says, even in the midst of your doubt, my strength is bigger than your doubt. I'm stronger than your lack of faith. I'm praying for those in here who just need a filling of their faith because it's hard to believe that he's really coming back. For me, for this broken world, he says yes. 
He didn't choose because you're faithful. He didn't choose you based on anything you've done or anything you could become or you're going to be. It's his gift, not based on your goodness or not based on your badness, based on his righteousness. He's offering a marriage proposal, if you'll say yes. An invitation to his never-ending love. See, Christ's love is the only love you cannot earn. It's unlosable. It's beautiful. It's a love that every human being on this planet has always been looking for. And it only comes through the blood of Jesus, the covenant sealed by Jesus. So we invite all Christians today who've responded to Jesus' proposal to renew your vows today. Renew them as you sing. Renew them as you pray. Now, you don't need to do it to keep your salvation. That's done. But you get to renew them. Because have some of us maybe forgotten our first love? We've forgotten why we live each day. We've forgotten the sacrifice he's made. We've forgotten why we're on this planet. Because until he comes again for the wedding day, which we don't know the hour or day, our job is to create beautiful things to point to Jesus. Our job is to serve those in need to point to Jesus. Our job is to create wonderful families of all different kinds centered around Jesus so that people will look at our lives and say, I want some of that love. Until he comes again, we have a job to fight against injustice, to give a glimpse of God's goodness until he comes. They're going to hand out appetizers, right? Saying, oh, there's a better meal to come. You just wait. For those of us who already know Jesus, it's a day we get to renew our vows and to say, Jesus, forgive me for putting you second or third or fourth or tenth. Forgive me. I renew myself to you. And perhaps you've never responded to Jesus' proposal. You didn't know it was that. You thought it was religion or being good or being nice or being moral. Well, you get to say yes. He's waiting for your answer. Today could be the day that you say yes to his invitation to belong to him. Today could be the day where you say no and turn away to the other ways that don't center around Jesus. Because Jesus says there's no other way except to center around me. And he's not being arrogant. He's just being truthful. It has to be around me. The only one whose blood and death can give you life. No one else's can do that. Not Muhammad's, not Buddha's, not even the greatest social justice advocate who's ever lived. Their death, their blood cannot save you and give you the eternal love that you're looking for. It's only Jesus. And is that Jesus, because of his blood, that inspired us to go and serve and love those who need his love, to serve those who are hungry, right? To fight against injustice. It's because of his never-ending, unlosable love that we do that. And so we invite Christians and we invite those who are not yet Christians to say yes to this invitation, to belong to him, to be welcomed to his eternal family. And so we invite you to say yes. Would you pray? Let's close our eyes. Lord Jesus, for some of us who never even thought about this relation with you as a marriage proposal, and so I pray you would help us to reconnect with this reality. This is a love affair. 
This is not a religion. This is not being a good person. This is about you and the center of our lives. And so, Lord Jesus, help us to say yes anew for those of us who already know you. Help us to say yes for the first time to your invitation to step out in faith. And so, Lord, we thank you that when we say yes, that you place your Holy Spirit within us as a seal, as a guarantee. It's the engagement ring promising us that you will not turn your back on us, that you are good to your word. And one day when you have finished, when the time is right, you will come back for your bride and welcome us home in the Father's house that you have prepared for your bride. Oh, Jesus, come, Lord, come. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.